0: Hi, this is Liz Williams. I'm the founder of the National Food and Beverage Foundation and also the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast that explores the intersection of museums and cuisine. We don't have a guest today other than me. I've been asked by several people to talk about my food museum journey and why I started this podcast. So that's what we'll be talking about today. I started because I was interested in food a long time ago, but I had no way to study it. So in school, I wasn't able to take food studies. My only choice was really to go into agriculture or to become a dietitian and take home economics. And I wasn't really interested in that. So I did what so many people do when they don't know what they want to do. I became a lawyer. But even though I wasn't studying food, I never really lost my interest. I did not really want to be a chef I didn't want to own my own restaurant. I was really interested about food and food culture. Part of that may have come from the fact that I grew up in New Orleans where there is a very very strong food culture. And another reason might have simply been because I grew up in the Sicilian community of New Orleans which also had a very, very strong influence on me and of course was very strong in the area of food culture. So with those two things in my life, I probably was very interested in the culture and I was able to see how the food culture of New Orleans was both similar and different from the New Orleans Sicilian food culture. Anyway, as I continued on my life, I still always approached new situations, especially places like foreign countries or whatever. I always approached them through food first. I actually was a JAG officer in the U.S. Army, and I was stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. And because of that, I was able to eat a lot in Germany, but also in other European countries, and I always did learn about the culture through food, and then you learn other things, but the food was always forward. I also have noticed that in history museums, there were dioramas about the search for food, so you learned a little bit about the day-to-day life of early people, their finding and preparing and eating food. And there were, they were illustrated by the artifacts that various archaeologists had found that were all related to food. Things like flint knives and flint arrow points and spear points, bone fishing hooks, Um, All the kinds of things that you might imagine. Skin sacks that would hold food and clay cooking balls and very early clay pots and baskets, grinding tools. And of course, these probably all came out of various middens that were full of bones and potsherds and other kitchen waste. And of course, today anthropologists and archaeologists are finding uh, fossilized remains of all sorts of things other than bones. So now they're finding that through DNA and other kinds of analysis, they can actually see what people ate that was not so long lasting. So the vegetable materials and things like that. And I think it's even exciting to find out about the remains chemically determined to be things like brewed, brewed spirit things like beer or something like that early, early on. I think that's all very exciting. Fermentation was something that, that was happening naturally, and so whether anyone had to invent it or not is is not necessary. But then... After these early, early days, it turns out that people discovered or invented agriculture. And once that happened, the search for food was really changed because food was actually put aside and put away for difficult times. And not everybody was involved in the search and the preparation of food. So now people are interested in other things besides food. So historians and anthropologists and archaeologists are looking at aesthetics. They're looking at war, hierarchy, religion, and not looking at food anymore and You know, you could almost say that people had stopped eating if you wanted to draw a conclusion about how suddenly the interest in food was turned to something else. And even if you look at museums that have beautiful decorative arts that are related to the table, hand-painted plates or blown glass vessels, things like that, we know that most people did not eat or drink with those kinds of utensils. Those were things that only the most high up elites would have used. And so we have very little documentation of the day-to-day plates or other things that people would have been drinking out of or, or things like that. and. It it just saddens me to think that there are lots and lots of things we'll never know because nobody thought they were important enough to categorize. I think that happens a lot in day-to-day life, and we only seem to document the anomalies instead of the day-to-day. But it's really a shame. And unless you're eating something extraordinary on a particular day, and you're just getting up and eating your bowl of cereal every morning or whatever, you're probably not documenting that either. And I think that we should. We need to document the day-to-day as much as we document the unusual because it's the day-to-day that really builds culture. So I decided that it was time to start a museum a museum that would deal with this very thing that I'm talking about, the day-to-day of eating and how food and culture, food and drink really, and culture are so intertwined, how the way we eat actually affects our culture. For example, if we eat with our hands, Um, and sit around a a communal bowl that affects our culture and the way we interact with each other, which is very different than, for example, eating in our cars, where we're eating individually and not eating the same thing, but maybe stopping through the drive-in line and everyone ordering something different. So our experience of what is eating together is different depending on how we eat. And then once our experience of eating together changes, our experience and interaction with each other changes. So that's something that I think we need to be mindful of. We need to be thinking about how our geography affects not only what we eat, but how we eat it. And do we eat a big meal in the middle of the day? Do we eat a big meal at night? Certainly, there was a time when you had gotten up early because we were a mostly agricultural society. And you worked from the time that there was sunlight early in the morning and you had a very large main meal. And then at night, you might have had something that is more akin to a snack, and it would have been leftovers from the main meal or something else very simple that means that the family would gather for the main meal in the middle of the day and it wasn't something that you would then retire from and say go to bed today we probably eat our main meal in the evening because people are at work and then the family gets together in the evening And this is their first opportunity to all eat together. And so in order to preserve the the family, we have our main meal at night. All of these things are important for us to observe and to document. So I decided that we needed to start the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. I wanted to do this because... I thought that by having something that was regional, we would be able to have a cohesive subject matter. Even though every state is different in the South, there are certain things that are cohesive that make it fairly easy to talk about Southern food. It's also true that if you were trying to discuss the food especially historically, the food of any of the regions of the United States, the one that has the most resonance and the most history would probably be the food of the South. So that made it really perfect. New Orleans is the place where this museum has opened, and we opened in 2008. It's a place where when you start to describe it to people, they always say, I can't believe that one didn't exist before because it's not actually the very first food-related museum in the United States, but it's one of the the early ones that is much more general and cultural and not related to either a uh, a company like Uh, The world of Coca-Cola, which is really a marketing arm of Coca-Cola Company, or not related to a particular food. For example, the Mustard Museum or uh, the Potato Museum in Idaho. These are museums that are very, very limited to a particular area or a particular food. And of course, the uh, Mustard Museum really arose out of a mustard shop and a person's interest in mustard and mustard pots. And it's a fascinating place, but it is as limited as mustard might be. Anyway, when I started this, I really was doing this not as a part of any kind of governmental entity. So that meant I only had the money that I could fundraise and because of that we started small. I thought it would be better to get started and not just be an idea because you can talk about it and fundraise for a very long time and you can be kind of like a dog chasing its tail. You say oh we need four million dollars in order to open and then by the time you raise the four million dollars costs have changed and now you really need 4.7 million dollars so then you can't open yet so you have to keep fundraising and then by the time you get the 4.7 million you really need 5.2 and so to avoid that i decided that we would start small and grow rather than try to start big even though it would be much more exciting to start big it was much more manageable to start small and then grow we were very very fortunate i think that we actually had luck on our side and we opened the museum at a time when the interest in food was really really exploding and we found that people would come to the museum and then they would actually bring us artifacts that they had, things that they may have inherited that they knew were too important to discard, but things that they actually didn't want. And so because of that, we we were the beneficiaries and they donated these things to us. And that allowed us to grow and expand and deepen our exhibits really all the time. So that meant if you were interested in us at all and you came back say, three or four months later to take another look, we would actually be different and actually be better than we were when you first came. And that, of course, was just good fortune. So this happened 12 years ago, our opening. We opened in 2008 at the Riverwalk Marketplace, which was and is a mall on the Mississippi River. Today, it is a an outlet mall, but when we opened, it was still recovering after the 2005 devastation of Hurricane Katrina. And so when we were there, it was just a limping, a mall that was limping. I don't think that it's suffering anymore, but it was limping at that time. And so because of that, we were able to use that space as our incubator. It's a place where we learned kind of what we needed to be. So in 2019, I asked the board of the National Food and Beverage Foundation, which is our umbrella organization, to let me step aside and not be the president and CEO of the organization anymore And so I took on the position that they created, which was called the founder. And so now Brent Rosen is the new president and CEO, and he's the person responsible for the day-to-day operating of the organization. And we interviewed him in a previous podcast. So if you're interested in hearing about his ideas, and what his plans are for the organization. You can listen to that podcast. So today, people have discovered the cultural value of food. Unfortunately, because it's been so slow, there are some things that really need to be undone. For example, during the historic preservation movement, that started in the 19th century and that certainly has taken hold in New Orleans because of so many of our historic buildings that are very lovely and beautiful. But so many house museums were taken over by organizations that wanted to preserve the buildings And they were much more interested in the aesthetics of the salons and living rooms and dining rooms and bedrooms than they were in preserving the kitchens. And so often the kitchen would be the place that was dismantled and turned into the office of the organization. And nowadays people are saying, Oh my goodness, we didn't preserve that kitchen. We didn't even document that kitchen. And so we can't put it back the way it was. And you'll see people making calls for, does anybody have pictures of this kitchen? Maybe a picture of a person who was standing in front of the refrigerator. So we'll know what the refrigerator looked like or something like that. Um, That certainly happened at Mount Vernon. There was an attempt, and I think they've been quite successful, in putting the early kitchens back and also they've added the distillery because you can't really change history and pretend that George Washington didn't have a distillery on his grounds. And so they've had to accept that perhaps history needs to be told in a straightforward way. So another thing that is happening which is good is that museums that already exist are deciding that they should also recognize the importance of food and culture. And they're talking about food-related exhibits of various kind. So that, for example, if you are a decorative arts museum and you have beautiful plates and fabulous hand uh, mouth-blown goblets, you not only display the goblets and talk about how they were made, and talk about the people who painted or threw the pots. But you also talk about what was eaten on those pots and what was drunk in those glasses, because these are practical items and you can't stop after they've been manufactured and just say they exist to be in a museum because they existed to be on the table. And it it is something then that is actually as much part of the story as the manufacture of them. So I think it's really exciting that museums are seeing that you can talk about food now and it's actually part of the story and not something that is so, so ordinary that it doesn't need to be discussed. So also we're learning that by talking about food and its history, we are learning that things that we are worried about now, like biodiversity and global warming, globalization and other political issues, which we're all facing right now, can be either those discussions enhanced by our knowledge of history, or sometimes even the solutions are found in history. And so knowing about those things, seeing what other people have done, knowing what those other seeds were, how many beans were being grown, who did what in what uh, geographic location, all of that is making a big difference in trying to solve and approach some of these problems. And it's also true that you can see that even things like weight loss diets, that of course, historically, we can follow weight loss diets through history because there were lots of advertisements and writings about them, and certainly a number of books about it. But now people are realizing how cultural our eating is. And so things like Noom are actually trying to change our eating habits through culture and not just through willpower or something like that. So I, I'm really heartened by all of this understanding that food is just so interwoven in our culture that you can't talk about culture without talking about food. Also, museums are suddenly realizing that the experience of attending their museum can be enhanced by their cafes. So it's not just, oh, this is a really big museum, and so if you want to spend a number of hours here, you have to have some place to eat, otherwise people will leave the museum and not come back. It becomes part of the experience of the museum. I think that one of the really excellent examples of that is the Smithsonian African American History Museum, where the food is very, very carefully curated in their cafeteria, so that you are actually learning about the what what people ate in different parts of the country who were African American, some of the uh, the roots of the food in America, and all of that. Can be found in the experience of going to their cafeteria, and you're finding that in many, many museum cafeterias today. And I think that that's a really important kind of um, kind of phenomenon. So I started the podcast to explore all of these issues with everybody. Not just the people who come to the museum, because you have to be in New Orleans to come to the museum, but so that we would have a way to reach people outside of the ones who are in the museum proper. And this gives us a way to talk about it. So I hope that on hearing some of what we're talking about today and right now, you might listen to some of the earlier podcasts and certainly to share this podcast with others who may have some of these issues and who know how important food is to the study of culture i also am exploring the special issues that we have if you are a food museum and you are or you are a museum that is trying to display food So there are some special things that you might need to deal with if you have um, pots and pans that are not in pristine condition. There are people who would want to maintain the actual alcohol in old bottles so that it can be studied because alcohol changes and you can learn a little bit about all of the styles and mechanics of cans and bottles and all of that sort of thing by having the, the packaging materials. And sometimes those packaging materials may not be a hundred percent clean and you can't really clean them as well as you want to without say damaging a label or whatever. So, some of that is uh, important questions, on um, curatorial and c- conservation questions that I think people in other museums may want to weigh in on. So that's another thing that we will be exploring in the podcast, because as food museums begin to flourish and as other museums begin to discuss food, then these issues will have to be faced by all museums that go in this direction. So I ask you, number one, to share this podcast. I ask you to subscribe to the podcast. And if you like it, please comment. So thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.